The Urbanist is brought to you in association with the Department of Culture and Tourism, Abu Dhabi. Sadiat Cultural District Abu Dhabi is a beacon of hope and inspiration. A catalyst to spark growth and collaboration with museums and experiences, where art and science and nature and technology coexist. The belief of Abu Dhabi that culture is the backbone of our society. Stay tuned for a special episode of the show, in which you can hear His Excellency Mohammed Khalifa Al-Mubarak explain exactly why and how Sadiat Cultural District Abu Dhabi is the perfect place to collaborate, create, and innovate. Sadiat Cultural District Abu Dhabi, proud partner of The Urbanist on Monocle Radio. Hello and welcome to The Urbanist, Monocle's programme all about the built environment. I'm your host, Andrew Tuck. Coming up... We have to have more nature-based solutions for dealing with runoff. Otherwise, in another 100 years, we will be having to build another tunnel to deal with exactly the same issue. And we can't continue to do these big engineering projects. We're going underground. Not to jump on a train this time, but instead to explore what goes on beneath our city's buildings and roads. From a transformative project under London's River Thames to a network of tunnels helping Torontonians to stay warm. And how Naples' catacombs are reviving the neighbourhood which lies above. That's all coming up over the next 30 minutes here on The Urbanist with me, Andrew Tuck. London's sewage system was designed with a very different idea for sanitation and hygiene in mind with measures allowing overflow during periods of heavy rain to avoid sewage treatment plants being overwhelmed. The result is a brown and altogether unappealing River Thames. But in 2024, a transformation taking place beneath the River Thames, incorporating some of the deepest tunnels ever dug beneath the UK capital, will deliver a clean river for Londoners, along with three acres of new public realm too. I was joined earlier by Claire Donnelly, who's the lead architect and client design advisor for the Thames Tideway project. And I started by asking Claire to explain what the project is all about and why so few of us actually know what's going on. Not a lot of people know that at the moment, because London has a combined sewage system, it's discharging raw sewage into the Thames roughly once a week. And that's because when it rains, as little as one millimetre of rain can overwhelm our Victorian sewage system. And so its safety release valve is into the Thames. So the Thames Tideway Tunnel is a project to catch that sewage before it overflows into the Thames and causes all those environmental impacts and then take it down in a very deep tunnel that runs broadly underneath the river from Acton in the west to Beckton in the east where it can be treated and then the clean water is put back in the Thames safely. I kind of imagine that the Thames had been cleaned up in the 60s and 70s and it was actually reasonably clean, but there's a a lot of sewage going in. There is a lot of sewage going in it, but it is really that combined nature of the rainwater. So because we've been hardening all of our surfaces for years, we've got a lot more paving, that water washes straight off into the sewage system and then it combines, dilutes and pushes that sewage into the Thames. So it has been cleaner, it is cleaner now than it has been in its history but when you have one of these events the oxygen level drops in the Thames and it leads to lots of fish kills so there is big environmental implications for every time that happens. 
we're going to dive into the benefits for London in a moment, but just tell us, when did this start and when does it end, the building of this tunnel? It's been a long trajectory. So it was designed back in the, the noughties. I started in 2010 and it was already in feasibility stages. Construction in earnest and we appointed our contractors 2014, 2016 and we've been tunnelling busily away under London for several years. That tunnelling is now complete and we'll be looking to commission the system so to join it up to the existing sewage system in 2024 with a view to finishing construction in 2025. It's been a bit unfair because the old Elizabeth line, they've got lots of headlines for all their tunnelling and all the things they were doing. You've been a bit of the quiet engineering project here because it's epic. Really, yes. It really is epic yes. and all this tunnelling. And I think people see along the river things going on, which we'll come to in a second. But I don't think people have in their minds what's actually happening underneath their feet. Yes. I mean, to an extent, we benefited from the fact that we had to be much deeper. So the Thames Tideway Tunnel goes underneath all of those other tunnels in London. And that's the idea to keep it out of the way. Whereas Crossrail had to thread its way like in between them at a much shallower depth. But it's a very big tunnel. It's sort of twice the size of a Crossrail running tunnel. And it runs broadly under the river, as I said. So we have had less interaction with people. We have 24 surface sites, so places where we interact with the above ground areas of London. And those people have been affected. But as you say, broadly, we've been able to be quite quiet, quite below the surface and get on with this sort of huge engineering operation that's been going on. So explain to our listeners why this is such a a good deal for London on the surface too, because where you have these sinkholes to take away the sewage, where you have these runoff water pipes, you're building plants and machinery which are then getting encased in parks in what to me looks like some really impeccable pieces of architecture and new elements along the river as well. So what, what are you building? Because we couldn't dig those sinkholes, the shafts that we need down in certain areas of London because there's no space, we've actually built them out into the river. And on top of those, we can then build new areas of public realm. And the really lovely thing as a designer and an architect is that you're building that public realm in a place where people want to be. So we say London's River, the Thames, is its largest open space. But very often, particularly on the North Bank, it's very car dominated with the roads that run along there. So there's not really many lovely places that you can sit and enjoy that relaxation, those views over the water. So we can create public realm on top of these structures then in the places where people want to be to give them that time to stop and pause and really enjoy that river environment. I mean, the sort of tagline, the motto of Tideway generally is reconnecting Londoners with the River Thames. And I think given that most of that infrastructure is below ground, these spaces did give us an opportunity to really celebrate that connection between London and her river. And how many of these new spots will there be along the river then? So we have 24 sites in total and about a third of them are what we call foreshore structures, so ones that are built out into the river. So we have seven different foreshore structures from Putney in West London, quite close to the start line for the Oxford Cambridge boat race, to King Edward Memorial Park, which is out in Tower Hamlets, and on the edge of a really lovely green space that's adjacent to the river already. So there were some opportunities there to extend the park and bring it out into the river a bit further. But for visitors to London and Londoners, I guess the ones they may have noticed, not even knowing what was going on, they maybe thought it was dredging or some additional kind of embankment work being done. But in Blackfriars and along the embankment, you see these diggers and the the excavation and the building work going on. 
Describe just one of these projects. I know that you work right in the centre of London. You see one of these every day at yes. Blackfriars. Yes. So you're coming to work in just over a year's time. What will you get to see at Blackfriars and, and enjoy, I hope? So Blackfriars is our biggest site, our biggest public realm site. The reason for that is it's the site where we intercept the sewer, which was the old river fleet. So it's a big volume of sewage that's coming down there. And that's translated into the engineering and the scale of the works that we needed to create. So what we're able to do with that, and because we've had to avoid all that other infrastructure below London, so we've got the Waterloo and City line, there's the existing sewers running in the embankment there, is we've got a very long linear park effectively or public space that's going to run along the embankment and with that one we're able to solve some of the problems that occurred in the 1960s when a major underpass for vehicles was built underneath the bridge which had forced sort of pedestrians into really narrow corridors to get under the bridge and continue their journey along the Thames path we're going to have a much wider walkway for people to enjoy it's entirely level entirely inclusive But we also have some stepped areas and terraces, which will allow people to sit and enjoy views of St Paul's one way. And then the London Eye and into central London the other way, in that we've been able to include areas of planting and we've got some really major artworks by the artist Nathan Coley, who was tasked with trying to express the sort of scale and ambition of the engineering below ground through above ground artwork. So he's created a number of interventions called the stages, which really help shape that place and add a sort of sense of individuality as well as doing things like framing views and providing areas of shelter and more intimate spaces along that space. You've also made provision for people to put their feet in the Thames which probably is not something they've ever ever (laughs) thought of well because there have been calls before for like swimming pools and all sorts of things along the Thames it's just not quite right for London because it is so tidal and it is so murky as well yes but now you're going to be able to put your feet in the water. Yeah. I mean, we were, when we started, we were really taken by whenever you have an opportunity, however hard to access in London, so like the area outside the Tate and on the South Bank, for people to get down to the water, people really embrace it and they'll really try to get down. But it is not a safe environment. I have to say that there's a seven metre difference between high and low tide in the Thames and it does flow quite fast. So what we've done is we've stepped down our terraces outside of the flood defences. So there are some areas which will flood at the highest of tides. There's still balustrades, there's still the guardings around them, but people will be able to do a bit of paddling at the lowest of tides and actually have that connection with the water. And then even at the times when it's not flooded, even when the times when the tide is much lower, because they step down and they face out towards the river, you haven't got a big flood defence structure between you and the water. People should feel more like they're part of the river space rather than the land and the road space behind them. So that was the idea There are sort of historic areas of floodable public realm in London. So there's a stretch in front of the Greenwich Maritime, the hospital down there. And the video we've seen of people just interacting, having fun, enjoying the water, you know, as the waves come in. It's great. That's the kind of feeling we wanted people to feel a little bit more interactive and enjoy the benefits of being close to the water and just a little frisson of getting wet. They brought you on as lead architect. What's that in... Involved. I, I don't know what a lead architect does, but I'm wondering if I, there are good benchmarks which go around the world and see what people have done by building out into the rivers and, and making these kinds of parks and interventions. Where did you begin and what was your? how did you come up with the vision for what you've built? 
The best vision for this was the Victorian sewage system. So lots of people don't know that the embankments were built to stop sewage going into the Thames. And a visionary engineer, in this case, Joseph Bazalgette, he built the sewers, but he also built the district line. He also built the road along the North Bank. And he also built parks and gardens on top of the land that they had reclaimed from the river. So that was, I mean, that's a high benchmark. I mean, that was already a really high approach to look at. And since we've done that, we've seen lots and lots of examples, particularly through flood defence schemes of really high quality public realm on riversides coming in. So lots of people around the world, big in New York, for example, of having to be creative about how we manage the liminal spaces at high water marks. We're having to deal with climate change and higher water levels. But those were all embryonic when we started in 2010. So really, we were looking to Bazalgette and the examples that were set back in the Victorian era for inspiration for our urban design for our foreshore sites. And tell me, how holistic is this project being? Because it is fascinating what you said at the beginning of this about the amount of runoff water we get. I live in the centre of London and near us, somebody has had the good sense to take up an area of tarmacked and paved park area. They've made lots of bedding plants and there's a little sign up that explains that the ambition about it is to allow the water to go into the soil and not go down the drains. Have you had conversations with other people who are stakeholders adjacent to the river about, okay, when you think about redeveloping these sites, let's try not to put so much tarmac down. Let's try and make public realm that's more porous. We have, but actually we don't need to. Lots of that is now in planning policy. Everyone has to do it. We have to make sure that we're not putting more, particularly surface water, down into the sewers. So I think that that argument has to an extent been won. I think what we've tried to do is make sure that we don't put any more water down into the sewers. So all of our hard surfaces, they will drain directly into the river. We're not putting them in the sewage system. And we've tried wherever we can to put in sud systems. So we've got all of our kiosks, even though they're quite small buildings, have got brown roofs so that they're slowing that flow. They're stopping that peak of water running off into the sewers and then they can cope for the longer term. And I think we've had these conversations all the way back into the noughties, 2010, that we have to do suds. We have to have more nature-based solutions for dealing with runoff in London. Otherwise, in another 100 years, we will be having to build another tunnel to deal with exactly the same issue. And we can't continue to do these big engineering projects. We have to find smarter solutions that can work more holistically, as you say, for London. So we hope that this is actually the last of this kind of project that we'll see in London and that over time, as more suds, more green spaces, more permeable surfaces are installed, there'll be no need to extend the hard sewage system as much as we So despite the growing population of London, I think on your website, and it suggested that by 2060, there could be another 16 million Londoners. That's a lot of people having a pee at the end of the day. And then all the rainwater, and we've seen that weather events have become more challenging. But there is a century's worth of resilience, just like Mr. Bazalgette, you have added that into London's DNA. Yes, I wouldn't want to sign up to the numbers now, but it is built as a long-term project and hopefully the last of such projects that is required for London. But it does require all of us, all of those who are involved in building in the built environment to make sure that we are managing our water in a more sustainable way than we are at the moment. We can't continue as we have over the last century to just fall back on hard surfaces and throwing that water down into the the tunnels and pipes below ground. My thanks there to Claire Donnelly for joining me on The Urbanist.
Next up, we're in Toronto, where a network of tunnels designed to help get locals around in cold weather is now facing the same stagnation that the glacial return to work has presented for offices above ground. To explain more, Monocle's Amy Vandenberg filed this report. Anthony Farnell, our chief meteorologist here at Global News, is braving the elements out in Toronto. Anthony, what can we expect from the latest storm? Well, the snow has begun in earnest and it is coming down heavily, Farah. And this really is a front-loaded system. What I mean Toronto is known for its cold winters. By mid-January, Canada's central economic hub and largest city freezes over, only to thaw in May. During the coldest months, ice and snow crust the sidewalks and a blistering wind howls through the city's central grid. Thankfully, Toronto has a secret weapon, the so-called PATH system, which has become the longest underground pedestrian system in the world. First built in 1900 and expanded throughout the century, this subterranean walkway stretching over 30 kilometers saves Torontonians from the harsh winters above and connects the many malls, subway stations, and office buildings that make up the downtown core. The tunnels aren't as bleak as they sound. Think a network of wide halls dotted with clothes stores, cafes, juice bars, dry cleaners, bookshops, and intermittent food halls and atriums. It's a climate-controlled, well-lit, marble-floored labyrinth with occasional escalators ready to bring you up to the surface or lobby of a hotel or office tower. You can get from Union Station to First Canadian Place Business Centre in 15 minutes and grab a Starbucks along the way, all without dirtying your boots in ankle-deep slush. And despite an atrocious lack of signage, everyone who populates it seems to know exactly where they're going. Before the pandemic, the underground maze was a busy place. Every 9am and 5pm peak rush time, crowds of suited and heeled employees rose and descended into the passages and flowed to and from Union as a single organism. Lunch hours were equally as active as workers ran errands and conducted casual business meetings over Szechuan on a tray in the food courts. But like many urban central business districts that serve the working public, Toronto's economic hub was dealt a massive blow by the pandemic, and the paths went quiet. Walking through downtown Toronto's path system, you can see a few more people making their way down from the buildings above to the stores and restaurants below. But the pandemic has certainly taken... Today, some foot traffic has returned to the system. But although it's no longer the ghost town it was, it has struggled to bounce back. Midweek crowds are more dense than Monday and Friday, and Toronto has been called out as one of the slowest cities in North America to return to the office. Those businesses that survived off of government aid throughout 2020 and 2021 are now feeling the pinch of debts having to be repaid, and many are ending their leases and closing shop. The state of the path echoes the reality above ground. The vacancy rate of offices in Toronto's downtown core is over 15%, and this number is expected to climb as 10-year leases renew. So what's next for this network, which was once so essential to the day-to-day lives of thousands of people? In a reversal of the old adage, if you build it, they will come, Toronto is currently holding its breath, hoping back-to-work schemes and incentives also bring workers back to the path. My thanks there to Amy Vandenberg for that report. Finally, to Naples, where the ancient catacombs are giving new life to a once marginalised neighbourhood. Isabella Jewell explored the subterranean treasures of Rayoni Sanata, 
with the young Neapolitans who have spent the past two decades reviving their area through its cultural assets. Sandwiched between Naples' historic centre and the beautiful hill of Capodimonte is Rione Sanità. It's a chaotic neighbourhood in which Vespers jerk along narrow streets and around market stalls. It's also a place that most tourists and many Neapolitans would never have visited, until fairly recently. One of the most deprived neighbourhoods in the city, it has also been marred by mafia killings and violence over the past two decades. To this day, a brief Google search of Rione Sanità brings up alarming warnings against visiting. But hidden in this neighbourhood is one of Naples' most treasured cultural hotspots, the catacombs of San Gennaro, the city's patron saint. And here is where a whole story of urban regeneration begins. It's like a travel back in the time, because from here we start to go in this area that is actually the most recent part of the Kadagum, which is the 6th century after Jesus Christ. That's Enzo Porzio, head of communications for the Naples catacombs. We are in an amazing basilica underground with the three main corridors and with two entries on both sides. One is the window where we came in and on the other side, in front of us, there is the main entry to the catacomb, which was ancient entry to this place. And we are surrounded by frescoes, mosaic, and of course, graves. Carved into the soft volcanic stone walls are human-sized slots. Daniele is one of the newest tour guides of the catacombs. We have to imagine a niche carved out in the wall, about 1.70 centimetres maybe, in which the people were just put it after their death, just wrapped in linen shrouds with scented oils on them, and then the grave on the wall was closed thanks to old terracotta slabs or tough bricks. These graves are now empty. All the remains were removed by explorers to a nearby cemetery called the Cimitero delle Fontanelle. But what's left provides a fascinating insight into Byzantine Naples and the social status of Rione Sanità right before its decline. Daniele takes me over to a beautiful fresco. It's painted on the inside of a large relief carved into the wall. So just choosing maybe one of my favourites is just over there. Yeah, yeah. That's one of the frescoes we have. And so right now we're just in front of our family chapel. So we have a sort of squared room with graves all at the sides and walls. This is a particular type of grave. It's called the Arcasolium. But we have an entire family. We have to imagine to have in front of us a fully red arch with some floral decorations on top all over the arch. And just in the front part, that's even the main part of the decoration, we have three people. They were an entire family. We are just right in front of the so-called Teotecnus family decoration. On the perfectly preserved fresco is a family of three, two parents and one young child in the middle called Nonnosa. They're dressed in fine jewellery and fabrics and the father, Teotecnus, wears a pin on his right shoulder. It represents his status as one of the highest-ranking members of the Byzantine Neapolitan court. There is a detail in this fresco. We have, between the funeral bed and the decoration, a fracture, a really deep fracture. Generally, a fracture in a fresco is a damage 
and it is, of course, but it allows us to have a lot of information about this family. Because this place is not only a cultural place, it's even, we have to imagine it like a book, with several chapters telling us several stories about the early Christian times. And why this structure is important? Because let us discover several layers of fresco. And so we had the possibility even to build again the order of the several deaths of every single member. The saint of Naples is buried here. San Gennaro was beheaded in Naples in 305 AD and the blood collected from his body is thought to have miraculous properties. In the years after his death, a bishop claimed to see an ampule of San Gennaro's dried blood turn to liquid, apparently a miracle. Ever since, worshippers gather three times a year in Naples Cathedral to witness the miracle. Most times, the vial seems to liquefy, but when it doesn't, it's a bad omen for the city. Because of the miracle associated with San Gennaro, many nobles were keen to be buried alongside him. These graves were the graves of the people that really wanted to be next to the saint and so near to the heaven. And of course, they were the most important graves they had. Given this neighbourhood's noble past, how exactly did it become one of the poorest parts of Naples? Well, it's all a consequence of poor urban planning. In the early 1800s, a viaduct was built by the French above the Quartiere, connecting the Bourbon Palace on the top of Capodimonte with one of Naples' main squares, Piazza Plebiscito. Here's Enzo Porzio again. So this bridge let people go over Rione Sanità and not pass it through the district. So this was cutting out our neighbourhood and was letting become Rione Sanità a ghetto during the time. If you keep a place abandoned, you can imagine things that will come out are not so good. And of course, that goes on the newspaper, on the national media, and this makes things even worse. So everyone basically were avoiding the district just because it was considered dangerous, a place to avoid, even because no one were knowing the amazing things that were inside. According to Daniele, even Neapolitans would avoid the area. It started always with stereotypes, but it was even a deeper question. It was maybe the not volunteer to go deep in our situation. I have an example coming out from my life. My friends, okay, I have friends all over Naples. And so sometimes I said, okay, we just spent our Saturday night here. They always say to us, you're just crazy. We had to, uh, to spend our Saturday night inside the district. And I always said to them, you doesn't know what there is inside Santa District. In a country where unemployment is sky high, imagine the situation back in the early 2000s in Rione Sanità, cut off from the rest of Naples. Enzo again. So everything started in the 2006 when we realised that we had to invent job opportunities for ourselves and also for other people around us. Enzo and his friends realised that the key to reversing this urban decay might be right under their noses. And at the same time, we were surrounded by those amazing places that were just abandoned by the organisation that's supposed to take care of those places. Especially the Katagum were closed. There were no lights. So um, we realised that those ones could become a great opportunities 
to rise up all the area through the cultural heritage, through the beauty, and create activities based on the culture. So in 2006, with the guidance of a local priest, Enzo and his group of friends founded Cooperativa La Paranza. After clearing and restoring the space, they launched paid tours of Rione Sanità's catacombs. So we decided to take the one that want to invest in themselves and invest in this new vision of the neighbourhood. And we start to work together with the cultural heritage. We can say that Sanita passed by a hopeless place in a place that have hope in the future, which is the most important change. Over the last couple of decades, the team and the number of visitors has grown exponentially. At the beginning, in the 2006, we were five volunteers and uh, with just the management of Wakatagum, we had 6,000 visitors in that time. Today, we have 70 employees, full paid, and also today we pass by 6,000 visitors to 200,000 visitors in one year. 50% are Italians, the other 50% comes from different nationalities. But we are really happy that this place is now becoming a place where to come. And in turn, it has put Rione Sanità on the map, this time for more positive reasons. The exit of the catacombs leads tourists directly towards Rione Sanità, now a thriving neighbourhood with cafes, wine bars and beautiful street art, all while maintaining a distinctly authentic Neapolitan feel. This became the opening door of the district of the neighbourhood that start to receive all the benefit that comes from a touristic flow. And you cannot do it waiting public administration or some solution that comes from the sky. You have to act with what you have. And what we had was our resource, human resource, our needs to change things, and also these amazing places that everyone let abandon it. So we just put together needs, competence, and uh, this uh, capability to change the destiny. It's like a dream that become true day by day in almost 20 years. For Monocle in Naples, I'm Isabella Jewell. That's all for this week's episode of The Urbanist. You can subscribe to the show on all podcast platforms to get new episodes every week. And you can find regular reports on all things architecture and urbanism in Monocle magazine. Sign up for a subscription at monocle.com. The Urbanist is produced by Carlotta Rebello and David Stevens. David also edits the show. I'm your host, Andrew Tuck. Goodbye, and thank you for listening, city lovers. City lovers.